We are ready for the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet who experienced all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of trials, and had a lot of sorrow in his life. And so Jeremiah is a great lesson and example for us on how to look beyond the pain and to be able to see what God's purpose is and what he's going to accomplish in the long run, even though the sorrow can last for quite a while from our perspective. From God's perspective, it's just momentary light affliction. All right, so open up your Bibles then to Jeremiah chapter one. We have another large book that we're covering here in our Old Testament survey. I actually counted the pages in my Bible for the book of Jeremiah, and it's 85 pages in my Bible. That's, that's a pretty big book of the Bible and takes a little bit longer than some of the other books that we've been reading. But Jeremiah is a book that is worth reading, and that's the whole purpose of the Old Testament survey, is to get us into our Bibles, to get us reading our Bibles, so that we learn to hear God's voice. And I can't think of better books in which to learn to discern the voice of God as opposed to all the other voices that are out there. There's many spirits in the world. There's many false Christs that are in the world as the New Testament teaches. And so we must learn to discern the voice of God versus the fake voices, the other spiritual voices that are in the world. And when you read the prophets like Isaiah, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you get so much of God's direct quotations. You know, a lot of the Old Testament that we've been studying up to this point has been the history. And God reveals himself through that history, and it's marvelous. But when you come to the prophets, what you get is the inspired divine commentary on that history where God himself is commentating on what he has done in history. You know, we live in a time where there's a lot of commentary. You can turn on YouTube and turn on the radio and turn on the television and everyone's talking about what is happening. So some people are doing and some people are talking and most people are just watching and listening. But the people who are doing in the Bible is God. He's the person who is the main actor. And then the one who is commentating on what is being done in the Bible is God. And so we get God's actions and God's commentary on those actions. And when you put those together, then you really have an understanding of God. And understanding God is the reason why you were created. It's the reason why you are a human being and not a bird or a dolphin or an elephant, but that you are a human being because you were created to know and understand God. And that's the most important thing about you. Your, your looks, your intelligence, your talents, your athletic ability, musical ability, artistic ability, all of that is great. But all of that pales in comparison to the significance of a human being being able to know God, have fellowship with God, have a relationship with God. And that's why God says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the strong man boast in his strength, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice in the earth. And so if we read through Jeremiah, and I hope you will, that you're gonna hear the voice of God and get to understand 
How does God talk? What does he sound like when he talks? What's his perspective on the history of events that he's bringing to pass? And how does he exhort sinners? How does he encourage saints? And all of that you find in a book like Jeremiah, a long book. But as I listened to it this week, you can read the Bible or listen to it. I was listening to Jeremiah this week. As I listened to it this week, I just took notice over and over again of how the voice of God sounds, and we want to sound like that. We want to learn to imitate him in his exhortation, in his reproof, and his correction, and his encouragement, and all of that. He's a wonderful example, and that's what children do. Children watch their father, children watch their mother, and they say, well, I'm gonna learn to do what they do, and I'm gonna learn to talk like they talk, if there's a good, loving relationship there between wise parents and wise children. And we have the wisest father, so we want to learn to, to act and talk like him. So you've got to spend time studying him and his words so you can learn how to talk like him and act like him. All right, so let's start off then in Jeremiah 1.1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So Jeremiah begins his book by introducing himself as the author of the book. We learn a little bit about his family background, about where he came from in Israel, not too far from Jerusalem, a small town belonging to the tribe of Benjamin. He's of a priestly family. And then we learn when he was doing his prophecies. We learn the who, the, the what, the where, and the when here in these verses. And it starts there in the reign of Josiah. It says in the 13th year of his reign, and according to our Old Testament Bible chronology, that would be 627 BC. Did I put that on your outline? Did I put the date there, 627 BC? So, that was Jeremiah's call to ministry, and this is about 100 years after Isaiah. So Jeremiah's book comes right after Isaiah, and you think, well, these are the prophets, and so they should all be you know, about the same time, and that's not the case. Even though Isaiah talks about a lot of the same things that Jeremiah does, he did it 100 years earlier, and now all the things that Isaiah was talking about 100 years ago, now it's time for that judgment to fall, and Jeremiah is the prophet who's largely prophesying right before and right until the exile. So remember, we put this up here as we introduced the latter prophets. Four books in the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12, which we have as 12 books in our Bible, but in the Hebrew Bible, it's one large book. And here you've got the 12, you've got some who are post-exilic, that means they prophesied after the people returned from the exile. You've got some prophets who were prophesying during the exile, Ezekiel being the main one there in the latter prophets. And then Isaiah and Jeremiah are pre-exilic because most of Jeremiah's prophecies, you see, start here in 627, and then it says he prophesied until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So he prophesies during this last 12 years or so, right before the exile, and that's uh, Jeremiah's prophecy, and that's the timetable. 
So the book is named after the author. He had a scribe who wrote down a lot of his prophecies named Baruch, and we'll come across Baruch a lot as you read through the book of Jeremiah. The most prominent scribe among the prophets gets a lot of attention. And then also, along with Baruch, you get a lot of attention on Jeremiah himself, that Isaiah didn't tell us a lot about himself. There was a few cases in the book where God would tell Isaiah to go do something and Isaiah would record what he went and did. A little bit of biography or autobiography in the book of Isaiah, but not much. In the book of Jeremiah, you get a lot of autobiography. Jeremiah talks a lot about where he goes and what he does and how people respond to him and how much he suffers. So that's going to be one of the themes of the book is the life of the prophet Jeremiah. And we'll get to that here when we get to the themes. And because Jeremiah is prophesying during this final days of the kingdom of Judah, therefore his book is kind of a depressing book. Because in these last days, it's Israel's last chance. The northern kingdom has already been taken away into captivity by the Assyrians about 100 years before Jeremiah lived and prophesied. And now Judah is the only one left and God had saved Judah with this mighty salvation that we read about in the book of Isaiah where Hezekiah trusted in the Lord The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, had invaded and captured all of the fortified cities, had surrounded Jerusalem, and it looked like the kingdom of Judah was doomed, just like the northern kingdom, Samaria, had fallen to the Assyrians, and yet God defended the city of Jerusalem for the sake of his covenant with David, and because Hezekiah put his trust in the promises of God in the Davidic covenant. See, when you put your trust in the covenant of God, then God will never disappoint you, and you will experience salvation. That's the lesson of the Old Testament. And now we have the new covenant, which is going to be introduced, one of the major themes in the book of Jeremiah, the new covenant. Now we have the new covenant and we put our trust in God through the blood of Jesus, the Messiah. And through that new covenant now, we have a sure hope. And everyone who keeps their hope fixed on the covenant of God in Christ will experience everlasting salvation, resurrection, kingdom, glory, all that the book of Revelation ends with. So we see Old Testament, New Testament, same themes, same God. Faithful he is to his covenant. You trust in him, you put your hope in his promises, you will experience the blessings of his covenant. And the new covenant becomes essential for us. And that's why the book of Jeremiah is so treasured by Christians because of its unique contribution in declaring ahead of time the new covenant that God was going to form not only with Israel, but also with us. So that's the author, the date, a little bit about the book, introducing it here. It is a depressing book because this is the last chance. And as we know from history, Israel does not repent. Judah, Jerusalem, does not repent. And therefore they experience the full judgment of God upon them through the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And so that depressing history is the backdrop. And if you want to understand it from the book of Kings, well, then you start reading in 2 Kings chapter 22 with the reign of Josiah, and then you read to the end of 2 Kings, and that would be the time period that Jeremiah is living in and prophesying. And in fact, the book of Jeremiah in chapter 52 ends exactly the same way that the book of 2 Kings ends. 
So Jeremiah's book is a companion book to the end of 2 Kings where we get insight into the life of the prophet who was ministering during those final devastating years of Israel's history. And as you think about the book of Jeremiah in in its uh, broad perspective, really it's not only about Jeremiah and the people that he's interacting with, but it's also about two cities. And this is something that we brought out last time when we were talking about Isaiah's book, that Isaiah and Jeremiah both have a heavy emphasis on Jerusalem. Isaiah calls it Zion. Jeremiah usually calls it Jerusalem. But the the capital city of God's holy nation, Jerusalem, still a focal point in politics and world history today, that it's the centerpiece of God's plan for the nation of Israel. And both Isaiah and Jeremiah talk a lot about Jerusalem. But Isaiah's book is also about another city, that Babylon and the king of Babylon becomes huge in Jeremiah's book because he's the one who's invading. And so Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the city of Babylon are mentioned 118 times in these 52 chapters. So that's over two times a chapter. You've got Babylon being mentioned. You get to an idea of how important Babylon is in the book. And Babylon doesn't actually show up for the first time until chapter 20. So the first 19 chapters, it's just about Jerusalem. And then after that, after chapter 20, then Babylon becomes a key focal point. So thinking about Jeremiah, think about the tale of two cities. Jerusalem, the city of God, Babylon, the city of the world. And why is that important? Why do I want to emphasize that right now? Well, many reasons. But one of which is that we're teaching the book of Revelation in our pulpit. And as we get into Revelation 6 through 22, the main prophetic portion of the last book of the Bible, you'll see that Jerusalem and Babylon are very important in the book of Revelation, just like they're very important in the book of Jeremiah. Very interesting parallels between Jeremiah and Revelation in this focus on these two cities that are polar opposites, the city of God and the city of the world. Jerusalem is mentioned 107 times in the book of Jeremiah and Babylon 118. So let's do a little bit of reading here at the beginning of Jeremiah's book as we introduce it. Take a look at the outline that I handed out to you and I'll go ahead and put an outline up here for you as well. As we've been going through, we've been using Swindoll's outlines for visual representation and then I've been giving you my own outline which is largely based upon the outline that was used in my seminary course on this subject. And so you see that the book of Jeremiah, if you put chapter one and chapter 52 as an introduction and a conclusion, then most of it is just this large block of material about the judgment of God upon Judah and Jerusalem for her sin. But it's not just prophetic oracles against Jerusalem like we have in Isaiah, but it does have a lot of prophetic oracles, but it also has a lot of narrative biography about the life of Jeremiah mixed in with all of this too. So it's about Jeremiah and his life and it's about his message and about how people respond to that message and the fall of Jerusalem and and all of this. You just get 45 chapters focused on Isaiah's final days, not Isaiah, Jeremiah's final days as the the lone prophet seems like uh, speaking the truth of God's word and the last chance for Jerusalem to listen and to obey. And of course they don't. 
And that's why uh, he puts the theme here of judgment is coming, repent. And that is a, a pretty good understanding of the theme. It's a little different from what I'll go over later. But then he's got kind of this appendix to his book in chapters 46 through 51 where he's got prophecies against the nations. And you see that on your outline on your sheet also. Judgment on the nations is the the third part uh, because I I separated the introduction. Chapter 1 is its own part. So this would be the third part if chapter one was separate. And it starts with Egypt and it goes through all of these nations and ends with two chapters on Babylon. Notice it's, it ends with Babylon. Again, a, a focus on Babylon and two long chapters on Babylon, which are important to study if you're going to be studying the book of Revelation because Revelation also ends the judgments with several chapters on the judgment of Babylon. And so Isaiah's book his judgment on the nations ends with judgment on Babylon as well. So that's very interesting. So that's those six, seven chapters. And then the, the final chapter is a, an addendum to the book that may or may not be written by Jeremiah. It very well could be written by someone else because chapter 51 ends with a statement that says, thus far are the words of Jeremiah which would indicate that after that is not the words of Jeremiah. And so there's this historical epilogue at the end of the book, and it's basically word for word the ending of the book of 2 Kings. So they chopped off the end of 2 Kings and put it here at the end of Jeremiah, and that forms the epilogue. And uh, you can take a look at that here in a moment. But I want to start by looking at chapter 1 and see how the book is introduced We read the opening verses just a moment ago, but let's take a look at a few of the other verses here. Pick it up again in verse four. Jeremiah chapter one, verse four. Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So, There is the call, and here you see the sovereignty, if we can use that word, of God in choosing his prophet. That before Jeremiah was ever born, before he'd ever done anything or made any decisions, God says, I formed you, I consecrated you, I appointed you to be a prophet. So this is the call of God. You see God's sovereignty. And Jeremiah, he doesn't want to be a prophet. He's like, no. He says in verse six, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak for I am only a youth. Sounds very much like Moses. God came and appeared to Moses and said, hey, you're gonna be my spokesman. Go be a prophet to Pharaoh and bring my people out. And Moses is like, no, I'm not a very good speaker. Get somebody else. And so now Jeremiah is like this second Moses. He's saying, you got the wrong guy. I'm not your man. And God says, that's a stupid thing to say. Verse seven, the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. So here, God assuages Jeremiah's fears. He addresses first what Jeremiah actually said, and then second, it seems like, he addresses what Jeremiah didn't say, but was in his heart. Jeremiah didn't say, I'm afraid to go and talk to people because they're not gonna like the word of the Lord and they're gonna reject me and I don't wanna experience rejection. He didn't say that. He said, I'm only a youth, I'm not a very good public speaker. 
And that's probably part of his complaint, but he's really just using that as an excuse so that he doesn't have to go and tell people an unpopular message. He doesn't want this ministry. And so God not only tells him, well, it doesn't matter whether or not you're a good speaker because you're just gonna be saying what I tell you to say. It's not like you have to come up with your own material here. You know, I was watching some uh, stand-up comedians this week and they gotta come up with their own material or somebody has to write it for them and then they have to deliver it. And so God says, you know, when you go out and you speak for me, you don't have to come up with your own material. You just have to say what I've told you to say. Not that difficult. And that's why I like the preacher in the church I grew up with. He always said, I've got such an easy job. All I have to do is study one book and teach it. Very simple. Uh, Don't have to come up with all this stuff and figure it out. Just here's my book, teach it, there you go. Simple job. And that's what God is telling Jeremiah. It's a simple job. You can do it because I'm just going to tell you what to say and you're going to repeat after me. And then he gives him that encouragement not to be afraid. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And we'll see that then as we read throughout the book. That Jeremiah tells people things they don't want to hear. That people want to take it out on the messenger. But God protects Jeremiah. And he's the one who survives all of this mess when the others do not. Then the Lord put out his hand, verse 9, and he touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So the word of the Lord is powerful. The word of the Lord is the most powerful thing in the world. Mightier than armies, mightier than kings, mightier than nations, mightier than economies, mightier than corporations, worldwide global corporations. The word of God is the most powerful thing in the world. And when God puts his word in our mouth and we speak that word, well then God is going to fulfill that word and we'll see it as the book of Revelation uh, may be very close to being fulfilled and all of these powerful nations are going to be destroyed as God's word that has been written down by John and we teach and we proclaim, it's all gonna come to pass. And that's the power of God over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. All right, so I just like that introduction there where you see what it means to be a prophet where it says I have put my words in your mouth. God's words in a human mouth, that's the ministry of a prophet. Now people will make an application from that and say well the church's ministry is a prophetic ministry because we take God's word and we just proclaim God's word and so while I'm not receiving new revelation like the prophets did, God's not putting new words into our mouths, and that way we're different from the Old Testament and New Testament prophets. But in the way that we're similar is that God's word is in our mouth and God's word is powerful. So there is overlap and similarity there, even though there are differences that are important to take note of also. If you want to use the word prophecy to describe the ministry of the church, I don't have a huge problem with that. As so long as you understand, that doesn't mean that we're getting new revelation. It means that we have a, a fresh understanding of the word that was once for all delivered to the saints and that we're proclaiming that with power, with God's Holy Spirit. All right, so that is most of what I wanted you to see here in chapter one, but come over to chapter two. Some great verses here towards the beginning of the book just to get a flavor for hearing God's voice speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. 
And look at what God says there in chapter two, verse five. Here's kind of the beginning of the message of Jeremiah in the book. And it starts in verse five with what? Thus says the Lord. Jeremiah didn't come up with this. Jeremiah wasn't just some social critic who was looking around and saying, what do I think God would say about this situation? And then he has his podcast and he, you know, he gives his opinion. No, that's not what's going on here. He's not putting words into God's mouth, which is what so many people do, but instead God is putting words in his mouth, which is what God alone can do. And the word of the Lord as Jeremiah spoke it was as if God himself was standing there and declaring these words to the people. Now why didn't God just stand there and declare the words to the people? Well, it goes all the way back to Deuteronomy and Moses where the people begged that God himself would not speak to them because God's glory and his holiness was so overpowering, so overawing that the people were afraid they were gonna die if had God speak directly to them. And so God said, okay, well, I will speak to you through my servant Moses. He will be my prophet. And so God continued to speak through prophets because God is too awesome for us to listen to him directly. And I'm sure there's other reasons why God has chosen to do it that way, but that's the one that he tells us explicitly about in the book of the law. So there's Jeremiah doing what Moses did, saying, this is what God told me, now I'm telling you. And what does he say in verse five? What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? This verse is a, a great introduction to Jeremiah's message because it's God complaining against the people. Now normally, what you see and hear around us is people complaining against God. They're like, oh, God's not treating me fairly. I don't like the way that God is handling things and blah, 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 blah. And people will say, oh, God is immoral and God doesn't care and where is God and he doesn't answer prayers and they have all these complaints against God. Well. That's man's word. When you come to God's word, what you have is God's complaint against man. And God's complaint against man is, what have I done wrong that you have forsaken me? What harm did I do to you that has caused you to leave? And so God is asking that question. And when people leave God, they're just hurting themselves. You see in verse five, they went after worthlessness and became worthless. I like the way the New American Standard translates this. They went after emptiness and became empty. That you become like that which you pursue. You become like that which is the idol of your heart. And if you make Disney superstars the idol of your heart, you'll become like those Disney superstars and you see what happens to them in life. They get all messed up. But if you make God the idol of your heart, pursue something that is worthy of the heart's devotion and the heart's love, much more than Taylor Swift or something like that, you know, then you're gonna become like God. Instead of becoming worthless like people, you'll become worthy like Christ. So don't go away from God, pursue God with your whole heart because if you go away from God, you're gonna pursue something worthless and then if you do that, you will become worthless. Now it's not politically correct to tell people that they're worthless, but oh well, I'm just speaking God's word. You can take it up with him. And then they, he goes on with that message. But I want to just jump down and uh, take a look at verses 11 through 13. Jeremiah 2, verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are not gods? 
but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. You see how this is basically the same thing that he said earlier. They left me and they pursued these worthless things. Well, that's what idols are. Idols are worthless things and they've changed their gods. Israel was founded as a nation upon the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the law, the God of Moses. That was the God who started their nation. He was the one who gave them their law, and the nation has changed its gods, like Jezebel and Ahab saying, you know, we're not going to worship the Lord anymore. We're going to worship Baal, and we're going to have the prophets of Baal, and we're going to kill all the prophets of the Lord. They changed their gods, and God says, what nation has done that? Look around. Did like the Greeks ever come along and say, oh, we're not going to worship Zeus anymore. We're going to go worship this God instead. No, no nation ever did that. And, and yet here, Israel did. That shows you the sinfulness of man. One of the things that my brother says is the strongest apologetic for the Bible is the unique hatred that people have for the God of the Bible. That they'll accept anything, They'll welcome anything with their you know, open-mindedness except the God of the Bible, which is exactly what the Bible says about people. And so it shows you that the Bible is true because of the unique hatred that people have towards the God of the Bible. And so it's unique that the nation of Israel has hated God and changed from worshiping the true God to worshiping idols, which actually shows that he's the only true God because no other nation has done this. Has a nation changed its gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. You hear the voice of God, that he's not this dispassionate guy. He's just not like, oh, I'm so sorry that you guys are doing this. And I just, uh, you know, I'm weeping in my heart because, you know, he's strong. And he's, he, he is compassionate, he is gracious, but learn to hear the voice of God as you read through the prophets. Hear what he sounds like. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What an awesome picture that is. That's one thing I want you to take with you from the book of Jeremiah to remember what false religion is like. False religion leaves the fountain of living waters. Jesus Christ, you know, says the Holy Spirit will be like a fountain of waters bubbling up inside of you, these living waters. And I don't know if you guys ever been to like a natural spring where water bubbles up from underneath the earth and creates a natural spring, a very clear, beautiful, good water. And you kind of want to live there where you've got this unending supply of, of good drinking water. What better place to live than by a natural spring, right? But the people of Israel, they leave the natural spring. They're like, oh no, that's terrible. We don't want that. And they go out and they carve for themselves cisterns. But as they're making these cisterns, a cistern is just a, a big stone area that holds water. You know, our water tower is just like a big cistern over here. And so they, they've made themselves a cistern where they can store water. They don't have to depend upon it bubbling up out of the ground. You know, who wants to depend on that? We got our own storage place where we got our own water, except the problem is that the cistern is broken and all the water leaks out. And so, great job. Uh, that's, that's false religion for you. You leave the living waters to go to the broken cisterns. So keep that mental image uh, with you as you go through life and recognize you pursued emptiness and you became empty and your cistern holds no water. Let's look at a couple other verses here. Verses 19 through 21. Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God 
The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. Here you see what we read also in Romans chapter one. How when people leave God to worship idols, God turns them over to those evil desires. And he's like, oh, you don't want me? Okay, well, let's see how life goes without me. You wanna be good without God? Let's see how good you can be without God. And so it's actually... God handing us over to our evil desires that he uses to chasten us and to reprove us so that we can see that it's evil and bitter to forsake the Lord your God, all right? So a great verse there. You see also in verse 21, I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? You can hear echoes of what God said to Isaiah here and what God says through Jeremiah with the vine metaphor being there as well. In fact, this opening chapter, chapter two, sounds a lot like Isaiah in a lot of ways. The voice of scripture speaks with one voice. The voice of God speaks with one voice throughout the whole Bible. It's pretty awesome. And then finally, come to chapter three, verses one through three for another key metaphor, illustration of the apostasy of the people of Israel. He says, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? That was against the law. Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers and would you return to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been ravished? By the waysides, you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore, the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. So this spiritual adultery, the spiritual immorality, the spiritual whoredom, very strong language that he uses to describe the unfaithfulness of Israel to the covenant with the Lord, their husband. And this is something you find throughout the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and all the way back in Moses, of course. So that's just giving you kind of an introduction to the book there in the opening chapters to, to hear the voice of God speaking through Jeremiah the prophet. And then the rest of the book contains many prophecies like this, many powerful words from the Lord that are very memorable. And as I listened to Jeremiah this week, I was like, oh yeah, that's a good one. Oh, that's a good one. And a lot of great verses here to learn from. Now, Jeremiah also wrote the book of Lamentations. And in our Bibles, the book of Lamentations comes right after the book of Jeremiah. But we're not going to study Lamentations after Jeremiah because we're following the Hebrew order of the Old Testament. And the book of Lamentations is actually in the writings in the Hebrew Bible. And so it's in a different section. We'll cover the book of Lamentations when we cover the writings, which is actually going to be a while. Now is as good a time as any to announce that after we get done with the latter prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12, we're gonna take a break from our Old Testament survey and do something different, do some apologetics material. And so we'll break up our Old Testament survey because we've been in it for most of this year. And it is a long haul. And so I think a break would be good for all of us myself included. So there will be a, a light at the tunnel if you're having difficulty reading through the prophets as they are long books and Jeremiah's book is kind of depressing. If you get through Jeremiah, get through Ezekiel and read the 12, then we can take a break for a while and do some New Testament reading or whatever you prefer for your Bible reading and your devotions. All right, so 
let's look then at the themes of the book of Jeremiah. And the first one we've already been talking about, sin and judgment. And as you see on your handout, sin and judgment is from chapters 2 through 29, chapter 34, and then chapters 38 through 39. So most of these first 45 chapters is sin and judgment. Now, what's left out of those? Well, you see 30 to 33 is not included in the sin and judgment chapters because 30 to 33 up here, you see is the promises of restoration. So there, towards the end of these 45 chapters of sin and judgment, you do have four chapters, because zero counts as a chapter. You have four chapters of this promises of restoration. And I wanna show you some of that promise of restoration in chapters 30 to 33, but we'll save that until we get to the theme for that, number four. So as we read about the sin and the judgment in these chapters, the connection between the latter prophets and Moses, the first prophet, the one who laid down the rules for prophecy and the law of the Lord, you see similarities between the message, of course, of Moses and the message of the latter prophets. And so I want to show you some of that. There's too much to show, but if you come to chapter four, verse four of Jeremiah, I can show you one example of how mosaic language is picked up by the latter prophets and that God is connecting and tying these latter prophets in with the Torah given through Moses. And in chapter four, verse four, God commands the people of Israel, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And so when the males in Israel were circumcised in the foreskin, that was the sign of the covenant that goes all the way back to Abraham in the book of Genesis. And it was a, also a, a key part of Moses' instruction at Mount Sinai with the giving of the law. But this idea that it's not just a physical act that is important in devoting yourself to God's covenant, but that the heart has to be circumcised, has to receive the mark of God's covenant, is not only something that Jeremiah repeats over and over again. He's got it in chapter six, verse 10, and chapter nine, verses 25 and 26. But it goes back to Deuteronomy. Keep your marker here in Jeremiah and come with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16. Now, the reason I'm doing this is I want you to see the connection between Moses and the latter prophets. This is just one example, but this is a strong connection through many different themes and many different ideas. The latter prophets are basically just saying, well, you remember what Moses said? Now, everything that's happening is because you've been unfaithful to the covenant and you need to repent just like Moses taught. Back in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, God speaking through Moses said, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty and awesome God who's not partial and takes no bribe. And he goes on and talks about how God is perfect in his ways and that we need to be like God in loving our neighbor as ourself and worshiping the Lord only. So that's the circumcision of the heart, and it's not only here in Deuteronomy, it's also in chapter 30, verse six, and other places, and just wanted you to see connection between the law and the latter prophets. 
Moses and Jeremiah. So this message of sin and judgment, it's nothing new. It's exactly what Moses said was going to happen. And now it's finally coming to its final conclusion. So then the second theme that I want to highlight for you as you read through the book of Jeremiah is Jeremiah's life, the autobiographical part of the book. And Jeremiah's life was not easy and it was not happy. He was not loved. He was not received. This is exactly the type of person that Jesus was referencing when he said that you persecuted all the messengers that God sent to you. And if you want to know what the persecution of the messengers that God sent looks like, you don't have a better record of that than Jeremiah's book. And so Jeremiah's book is kind of pitiful in that sense. He often has self-pity. He looks at his life and he's like, this stinks. I hate my life. And it's interesting to get insight into the mindset of this particular prophet. God didn't give us a lot of insight into Isaiah. He did give us a lot of insight into Moses. We know a lot about Moses and his feelings and his rejection and his struggles and all of that. So again, Jeremiah is kind of like Moses in this regard that we know a lot about his struggles and how the people did not listen to him and how tiresome and wearying it was for him to have a message that nobody was paying attention to. For example, look in chapter 1 again, back up into Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 18. And before it even happens, God warns them. And this is God being gracious, setting proper expectations. Disappointment is one of the hardest things to deal with. And so if we allow God to set our proper expectations, then we will be able to handle our trials better because we will be mentally prepared for them and we won't be caught by surprise Disappointment can be very difficult. So God lets Jeremiah know from the beginning, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. So here, Jeremiah, you're gonna be against the kings. You're gonna be against the officials. You're gonna be against the priests. You're gonna be against the people. Everyone, with all of their power, all of their strength, all of their influence, they're all gonna come at you. And I'm gonna make you immovable. I'm gonna make you this iron pillar and bronze walls, this fortified city, that the kings and the officials and the priests and the people, they can't stop you. And this reminds us of Jesus. The priests didn't like Jesus. They came at him. The kings didn't like Jesus. They came at him. The Pharisees didn't like Jesus. They said all kinds of things. They tried to get him killed, and they did get him killed. And so the same way the people responded to the word of the Lord through Jeremiah is the same way they responded to Jesus. And Jesus was also immovable. He couldn't be intimidated. He couldn't be bought. He couldn't be deterred. He was going to just do what God told him to do and Trust God for the results. And that's what Jeremiah had to do as well. He says there in verse 19, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. And you might think, well, they overcame Jesus. I mean, they put him to death. No, they didn't. Jesus allowed himself to be arrested. Jesus allowed himself to be crucified. And he did that because the Lord was with him and the Lord raised him from the dead. And so Jesus was not overcome or defeated in any way either. They didn't prevail against him because God was with him. And God was with him as he was dying, as he was buried, and when he was resurrected. Now keep that perspective. 
Also, take a look at some of the other persecutions of Jeremiah. We'll stretch this out into a two-week study of Jeremiah, give you more time to read through the book. No need to rush it. Come to chapter 11, verses 18 through 21. God has also graciously warned us that the world will come at us and that we are going to be persecuted when we speak like God, when we speak with this voice. Now, you can avoid the persecution if you change your voice. Just start to talk like the false prophets. And we read about the false prophets in here. Just tell people what they want to hear. Schmooze people. You know, make friends and, and gain influence. That you can do that. But if you want to be faithful to God, then they are going to not like you and they're going to try to shut down your message. The more you're like God, the more you're going to be persecuted. And so just be aware of that. It's like, oh, no, people are persecuting me. What am I doing wrong? No, just the opposite. People are persecuting me. I must be doing something right. Let's, let's do even more of that. And that's uh, the proper prophetic response. So chapter 11, verses 18 through 21. The Lord made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. Does that sound familiar? I did not know it was against me. They devised schemes saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. But O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For to you have I committed my cause. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life. That was his hometown, right? Anathoth was where he's from. Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine and none of them shall be left. For I will bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth, the year of their punishment. So Jeremiah is God's messenger. The people tell him, we don't want to hear God's message. Jeremiah says, well, I have to give you God's message. And the fact that you are violently opposing God's message means that God is going to violently oppose you. So that's the voice of God. That's what God sounds like. You don't mess with God. You don't mess with his servants. And he will have vengeance. And you can read all about God's vengeance in the book of Revelation. It gets pretty scary. You don't want to be on the wrong side of God and persecute God's people. It will not end well. It will end well for us. God will protect us. He will bring us safely to his heavenly kingdom. All right, a couple more examples here and then we'll wrap it up. Chapter 20, verses one and two. Here, Jeremiah is persecuted by a priest named Pashur. Now, Pashur the priest, the son of Emir, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. And you can read on what happens in the rest of the chapter. I just want to show you some of the persecution that you read about as you go through the book. Come to chapter 26. The title for chapter 26 is Jeremiah Threatened with Death. And then the second half of chapter 26 is Jeremiah Spared from Death. So if the government threatens you with imprisonment and fines, as many churches were uh, threatened with imprisonment and fines in Canada and America during COVID, and then God 
works it so that their lawsuit of those uh, churches is uh, justified and the state has to pay their legal fees and apologize. And, and, you know, God is with us. So don't be afraid and just do what's right and trust your cause to God and speak the truth. Use it as an opportunity to love people and testify of Jesus, not as an opportunity to glorify yourself but an opportunity to glorify God, and then God will be with you. So Jeremiah is threatened with death here in chapter 26. Look at verse seven. The priest and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, you shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, this house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be like desolate without inhabitant? That's free speech that we're not allowing because that's dangerous speech. You're gonna demoralize the people, and we won't be having the strength to be able to fight against the king of Babylon, and so you're a traitor against our city by speaking these things, and you need to die for that traitor speech. You see? It's the same spirit in people, as it is now, the same spirit in God as there was then and now. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And so books like this are written for our edification, for our encouragement, that when you do what's right and suffer for it, you are blessed, and that God will give you the strength that you need, and he will resurrect you, even if he allows you to be put to death like Jesus. Jeremiah is not put to death because it's not time for the resurrection yet and God wants to show his power to protect his people in history and so Jeremiah lives throughout the whole ordeal of the fall of Jerusalem and none of these threats against his life are successful because God fulfills his promise and he protects him just like he said he would. God hasn't promised us that we won't go to prison or die or be beaten. Jeremiah was beaten and he went to prison. He didn't die but God has promised us that we will be resurrected. And the resurrection changes everything. If you believe that, then you will have the strength to do God's will no matter what. If you don't believe that, and you love your life, and you don't believe in the resurrection, then you will fall away when persecution comes. And I don't want you to fall away. I want you to have a full reward. I want you to be blessed and enter into God's kingdom and him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You are not intimidated by the governor. You were not intimidated by the police force. You were not intimidated by the false teachers and the pastors around who were saying all those things about you and your church. You just kept on believing and teaching the truth. Well done. 